Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Well, uh, it is a happy day, you know? I'm, I'm pretty happy today. Happy to be preaching. Happy Father's Day to all y'all fathers. Happy, happy Juneteenth. Um, happy it's in the 70s. I mean, come on. I got baseball practice this afternoon, and it's been pretty hot this week. So happy, happy day. Um, so for, for those of you who don't know, if you ever forget it's Father's Day, just look at the side of my head, and if you see this lightning bolt here, you'll know, oh, it's Father's Day. Um, some of you laugh because you know. Others of you are like, what is he talking? So um, it was when, it was, I figured it out. It's, this is the fourth Father's Day now. It was when Palmer was four years old, my oldest son. I went up to him, I said, Palmer, uh, what are you getting me for Father's Day? And he said, haircut. And I was like, oh, really? What kind of haircut? And he said, we're both going to get lightning bolts in the side of our head. (laughs) Father and son. Um, And I don't know if he got it from like a basketball player or Lightning McQueen or like somewhere in between. But but we did it and he loved it. And every year it comes back and he's like, let's get the lightning bolt, Dad. So we went and got the lightning bolt yesterday. So yeah, here we are. Rather than a round of applause, I would love for any father and their son to go out and get a lightning bolt <laughs> themselves, so I'm not the only one. Some of y'all don't have the necessary requirements to get the lightning bolt, but you know, the Lord bless and keep you. Okay. Uh, do you ever wonder what spiritual power tastes like? What it tastes like? I know. Tastes like this. Anybody ever had a uh, a Moravian cookie before? Just by a show of hands, who has had a Moravian cookie before? Good God, help this congregation! Is there one hand? See that hand in the back? Thank you, sir. Uh, who hasn't had a Moravian cookie before? I may issue my resignation. (laughs) Cash, come here, man. On behalf of the 11 a.m., I want you to try this thing. You're not gluten-free or anything, Cash. Kids these days. All right. (laughs) Try this. On a scale of 1 to 10, rate this cookie. 1 being bad, 10 being good. A 10. A 10. Now, you're not supposed to lie in church, Cash, because I would give it like a 7.5. Thank you. I wanted wanted him to vouch for you. It's a 10. I'm not sharing with anybody else because you're my cookies. These are incredible cookies. So, all right, so for those of you who don't know, I was, uh, I was raised in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And in Winston-Salem, there's a heavy contingent of Moravians there, I guess, because uh, some of the largest Moravian cookie manufacturers in the world are there in my hometown. Uh, so uh, this is one of the, you know, really popular ones, Dewey's. I think they're second best. First best is Miss Haynes cookies. Write those down. 
Miss Haynes cookies. Um, and the reason why I say they're best is because uh, one of my childhood friends, Jed, Jedediah, his family runs it. And uh, I remember we used to go on like little tours and out of elementary school to the cookie factory to get to try them. And, you know, Jed would bring them to soccer practice uh, occasionally. Uh, he's, he was the cookie, his mom was the cookie mom. He was the cookie family. Um, I would love nothing else than for like Jed to get a hundred random orders from, from Louisville on Father's Day for cookies. So seriously, Miss Haynes cookies. But um, growing up, that's literally what I associated with the Moravians. That's all I really knew about them. They just like my buddy, they make good cookies. And, um, and they had their star, the Moravian star. You see the Moravian star. I actually thought that the Moravians were Jewish at first. I didn't even know they were Christians because the Jews had the star of David. The Moravians had their Moravian star. So I don't, this is how an eight-year-old's mind works. But then I got older, I became kind of, you know, in love with history, and I learned their story. And the, the story of how the Moravians were founded and came to be is an incredible one. Have you heard this? So in the 1720s, 300 Moravian refugees, I have a map for you here, fled to Saxony, Germany. And the reason why they fled to Saxony is because in Saxony, Germany, there was a count there, German count named Nicholas Zinzendorf, who allowed them to live on his estate. Zinzendorf is remembered in Christian history as the rich young ruler who said yes, because one Moravian refugee came and he took them in, and then one turned to 10, and 10 turned to 100, and 100 turned to 300. At the age of 27, he became the spiritual leader of a refugee community. He built them a little settlement um, called the Herrenhut Settlement. Picture of it, how it's kind of grown over the years. <clears throat> Magnificent place. And he served as their spiritual leader, led Bible studies, prayers, and the likes. Now, you would think with that kind of founding story, the spiritual temperature of that place would be high. Like it'd be like a little sliver of heaven on earth. These people would love each other. They would love God. They'd just be thankful for God's grace and bring them to where they're at. But that could not be further from the truth for the first five years that this community existed. In fact, they kind of hated each other. And the reason why was their Christianity. There were about four different flavors of Christianity there in the camp. There was uh, a Church of the Brethren, Lutheran, Reformed, and the Baptists. And I know it's probably the Baptists stirring things up, just to be honest, but, but like they, they were just at each other's throat constantly, couldn't, uh, couldn't agree on anything, focused on all of their theological disagreements until uh, May 12th, 1727, when they came under a conviction as a community that they needed to repent. So together, they covenanted to focus on unity. They repented into unity. They decided they were gonna focus on all the things that they agreed on rather than the few things that they, they disagreed on. And this covenant was followed by an extraordinary season of prayer. Uh, looking back on that day and the four glorious months that followed, Count Zinzendorf recalled this. He said, the whole place represented truly a visible habitation of God among men. 
They called the next four months the golden summer of 1727. Then on August 12th, 1727, um, some of the Moravian elders, elderly men and elderly women, decided to hold an all-night prayer vigil. And uh, the spirit was so powerful at the vigil that it said that two members of their community who were 20 miles away felt the presence of God come over them. One historian said that they left the prayer meeting at noon the next day. It's a long meeting. And I quote, hardly knowing whether they belonged to earth or had already gone to heaven. Now from that prayer meeting, the group decided to start the first ever Protestant 24-7 prayer vigil. Have you ever been a part of a 24-7 prayer vigil? Probably many of you had. We did one here at this church when uh, COVID uh, began. We held a 24-7 prayer vigil where you could sign up to pray. And we probably covered two, like first two months with prayer. And I'm telling you, I, I felt a spiritual energy from that as a church. I think God answered many of our prayers and blessed us in ways that we won't know this side of heaven. Now, the Moravians did something similar. What they did was they designated a place in their community, a physical location, and then they chopped up the week into 168 one-hour segments, because it's many hour segments during a week, and then two to three people volunteered to go pray at that place every single hour. And do you know how long the prayer vigil lasted? Uh, 110 years years. Now, what was the result of that? Well, they were the first Protestant group to send out missionaries. This small community of 300, which by the way, there are more than 300 people in this room right now. We can fit more than 300 people in the women's bathroom out there. I mean, I sweat, like come, come here on a Christmas Eve. So this is not a big group of people. But this community of 300 over the course of this prayer vigil, sent out 300 missionaries to every country in Europe, to North America, South America, Africa, and to Asia. 300 refugees who hated each other in the middle of the German country decided to repent and pray, and it was their prayerful intercession that set fires to world, evangelization, uh, world evangelization. Amazing. So would you like a cookie now? <laughs> yeah? Too late. <laughs> so today we're starting a new series, y'all, on the topic of prayer. Uh, and I believe that this series will be deeply practical for you. Uh, starting next week, each week for the rest of summer, we're actually gonna go through a different type of prayer that we see modeled in the Bible. We're gonna teach you how to do it, give you some practical handles, some theological handles on how to understand it. And I can promise you this, if you lean into this series, it could change your life. Now, if when you hear you know, the idea of a sermon series called A Summer of Prayer, and you're like, a summer of prayer, like you're already bored with it, then that's fine. And I say this with it, utmost pastoral love. I would encourage you, if you can't change your attitude just a little bit, just join another church for the rest of the summer and come back in August. 
And I don't, I'm, I'm seriously, come back on School Blitz Day, August 7th, go ahead and mark it down. I'm not saying that to be offensive in the least bit, but I want as much as we possibly can for this series to be synergized together, to be united in heart and mind for our church, everybody in this room to have an open heart and really truly desire to take their prayer life to the next level. So if you just not, if your heart's not there, that's okay. There's other great churches in Louisville, which we see in August. I'm, I'm serious and I'm not, I hear this from a pastoral heart. I just want us to all be united in this. But if on the flip side, if you even have just a sliver of openness, if you even think that like maybe your prayer life could, could jump just a, just a run, if you believe that there is a, a supernatural personal God out there who hears prayers, listens to them and acts because of what you ask of him, stick around. If this is just even in the smallest belief in your heart, stick around, try this out, lean into the practices. And I'm telling you, for some of you, it will change your life forever. You will learn how to commune with God in a way that you never have before. You will experience the peace that passes understanding, the joy that transcends circumstances. God might even answer some of your prayers in the way that you want them to. And it could be truly transformative for you. Now, all the practical stuff starts next week. Today, for the first week of the sermon, I actually wanted, I wanna have a little insider church talk. Can we do that? Every once in a while, you know, I like to have a little insider talk. Let's just talk church ink for a second. Because um, what I'd like to do today is cast a corporate vision for what I believe prayer could look like and should look like for a church that's serious about it. And I think this will help make sense as to why we start changing some of the things in our worship services. I mean, all we've done basically up to this point today is pray. I don't know if you noticed that. We pray through our songs. Um, like those are sung prayers. We've prayed for, over the baptism, over generosity, over fathers. Like we're gonna turn up the prayer temperature. Uh, and uh, and I, I don't want to be disorienting to you. I want this series to kind of serve as like the starting point for when we decided to turn the temperature up. So a uh, little insider conversation. Let, let's talk. Here is something that I have observed over the last year, church. Maybe you've observed this as well. I've observed that there are basically three secular tools that the church has used over its 2,000 year or so history to advance the mission. Here's the three. Uh, one is hierarchical authority. Two is cultural influence. And three is relevant technique or, or re relevant ministry method, we might call it in the church. Now, for what it's worth, the reason why I call these secular is not because I think they're bad. And that's not what secular means. Many people think that secular is just a synonym for evil. It's not. Secular just means that uh, it's something that's not necessarily religious, spiritual, or sacred. And none of these three things are religious, spiritual, or sacred in and of themselves. Like anyone can use them. Any organization can use them. The United States government uses them. GE Ford uses them. State Farm and Old Navy use them. And look at how fun their commercials are, right? Like it's just, and, and the church, by the way, the church can use them. And the church has. To great success over the last 250 years of our country. For example, for the majority of our country, the church has had institutional authority. 
hasn't. Like people have looked to the church as a place where they can find refuge or they can find truth. Oftentimes people look at their priest or their pastor as the middle woman or the middle man in between God and the people as they administer the sacraments to them or as they preach the word of God to them. For most of the history of our country, there's been an honor to being a a pastor or a priest, being clergy. I remember in the town I grew up in, it was a smaller town, but my dad ministered at the largest church in the town. And so most people knew us. And anytime we'd go in a restaurant, uh, one, somebody'd come up and ask for prayer. Hey, pastor, will you, you pray for me? And, um, and two, someone would almost always pick up the check. And I'm just saying, we can pick that tradition back up. But it was like, it, there, was, there was a certain honor there's a certain honor to being the, 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 that's my minister, you know, to being the preacher, to being the priest. Now, in the same way, Christianity has experienced a lot of cultural influence over the history of our country as well. Uh, our, our nation is built on the freedom of religion, but let's just be honest, there's always been a favored religion. There's always been a favored one in our country. That's not the case in all countries. Other countries have their own favored religions. Um, you know, some countries have state religions. Some countries operate in almost a theocratic way, right? In our country, yes, there's freedom of religion, but when people say one nation under God in America, most people know that we're not talking about like uh, Zeus, you know? Not talking about Allah or, or Buddha or whatever, right? Most people know they're talking about the Christian God because Christianity has always been the majority religion here. That's more of a sociological observation, by the way. Uh, On top of that, our church has been living proof of how relevant ministry technique can reach people for Jesus in incredible ways. So Northeast Christian Church is what we might call a part of the contemporary movement of churches towards cultural relevance. Some people called it seeker sensitive or the attractional model. Basically, the mindset over the last 30 to 40 years by a lot of church leaders is that church doesn't have to be boring. It doesn't have to be boring. Like we can bring it to people's real lives in fun, exciting, and positive ways. Uh, I remember I grew up in a church that uh, made the transition from, tra- from traditional to contemporary. And during the transition, we kind of got stuck in this, this middle area where there were two services that existed at the same time. Anybody else? There's a traditional and a contemporary service. You could pick which one to go to. Uh, now, they didn't call the contemporary service the contemporary service. They called it like some verb, you know, resurgence. Or, you know, no, it was a Greek word, soma. Soma is what our church service is called, soma service. But... But there was a marked, uh, marked difference between the way they went about doing uh, the service. Northeast was a part of that. I'd say it was probably late 80s, early 90s, where we started to make the, the shift in noticeable ways. We started doing skits. Anybody here during the skits days? Yeah, it started with skits and, uh, and funny videos. Bob Cherry would bend biblical truth to practical application in ways that would just stun people. Like every time I talk to somebody who sat under Bob's preaching for any amount of time, they'd be like, I swear my wife would write them letters before the sermon and tell them exactly, because we just had that argument yesterday. Like that was, the, that was the feeling of it. And he wasn't peeking in your window, I promise. It was just prayerful, practical preaching. And guess what? People found Jesus, lots of them. 
It led to bigger auditoriums and greater technology screens and cameras and an app and Jesus smoke and rock music. Come to a Christmas Eve service a couple years ago and it's literally a circus, literally a circus in this room. I remember the old tagline was, this ain't your grandma's church. Not necessarily for Northeast, but for contemporary churches in general. And uh, you know, we're a part of that. So yeah, American churches have leveraged these secular tools well. They have. Now here's the question I want you to consider today though. And this is an important one. I've been struggling with this for about a year or so. Question. What ought the church do when these secular tools don't work anymore? Because that's where we're at. What do you do when all of a sudden you realize the church doesn't even have credibility, much less institutional authority in our culture? You've heard me make this insight before. Uh, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor says that we live in an anti-authoritarian culture today. We've basically shifted from an age of authority, he says, to an age of authenticity. In the age of authority, people looked to external authorities like their parents, like religion, like the Bible, uh, like government or you know, traditional norms and customs that were handed down, the wisdom of the generations to come before us. They looked to external authority to find their identity and to find truth and to find their moral compass and purpose for life. Not so anymore. We've shifted from the age of authority to the age of authenticity where it's all like, follow your heart, make your own truth, you do you. Authority doesn't come from the outside, it comes from the inside. Add on top of the age of authority, the age of expose, where there are all sorts of moral failings and scandals from leaders in large institutions, including the church, and all sorts of media outlets that are more than ready to run them on the front page. And a hungry American population, I call it failure porn, right? Because they're just hungry and addicted to watch good men and women fall. And no wonder we have no authority. Oh, and then add on top of that, a total disregard for expertise anymore. If you have like letters behind your name, that works against you, not for you. I heard one uh, missiologist once talking about this. Uh, he said, uh, we live in a country where everybody has uh, the equal right to an opinion. But in this, age, uh, this, in this day and age, some people believe that that means all opinions are equally valid. And there's a big difference. So age of authority, age of expose, disregard for expertise. No wonder we got no institutional authority anymore. And we don't, church, we don't. What happens when that's the case? Oh, and what happens when we lose all of our cultural influence? Like when I was growing up, if you were a really intense, devoted Christian, people thought you were a little weird, but they tolerated you, maybe even respected you. Not so anymore. If you if you claim Orthodox Christianity, you are reprehensible in our culture, shameful even. What happens when that's the case? And on top of that, what happens when the relevant ministry technique that you've invested years upon years in and thousands upon millions of dollars in, what happens when it just doesn't have the luster that it once did? Just not quite as effective. At one point, the things that you would experience here on a weekend service was new, it was unique. Nobody was doing them. 
Then about 10 years ago, it felt like everybody's doing them. It's kind of like the barrier for entry. But every, everybody's, got, everybody's got all the cool lights and fancy stuff now. I mean, come on, you can go to like a work conference and Bob Golf is speaking and they have a hashtag and a graphics package and moving lights, right? <laughs> so I'm not saying the methods of the church aren't compelling. They are. I like the way we do church. They're just not unique anymore. So, okay, in the age of authenticity, old lines of institutional respect are gone. In the age of expose, people assume that all leaders and all institutions are deeply corrupt and cannot be trusted. In the age of post-Christianity, people have progressed beyond orthodoxy. The wisdom to us is foolishness to the world. In the age of apathy, people don't care about your technique or your methodology. Like We keep thinking that if we just capture the right marketing strategy or if we just get the right small group strategy or whatever, that'll fix it. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. And in the age of entertainment, people are used to spectacle. Okay, you've been to Disney. Ain't nothing we do in here going to impress you. You've been to Chick-fil-A. Like, we're trying to be hospitable, but those people are possessed by something. Like, you know, it's Christian chicken, right? Oh, and in the age of the internet... People are pretty unmoved by expertise or talent. I am under no illusion. For those of you who are super Christians that listen to sermons throughout the week, I'm not the best preacher you listen to. You can listen to Andy Stanley or, or, or Tim Keller while you're eating McAllister's. So what do we do? What do we do when our hierarchical authority, cultural influence, and relevant technique is failing us? Church, I have struggled with that one. Now, on a positive note, I will say, despite all this, there is still tremendous interest in the spiritual in our culture today. There's a hunger for the transcendent in our culture today. Look at all the shows and the movies that are about, you know, the spirit realm or ghosts or whatever it may be. There's also been a, a massive resurgence of interest in ancient practices like meditation or, or pilgrimage. Everybody's all, I'm spiritual, but not religious. I'm going to send positive vibes out to the universe and hope to get them back. Pray to the universe, the universe, positive vibes. You know what I mean? Like, that's what, that's what it is. I read a New York Times article uh, recently. I thought the, the title was catchy. Uh, it's called, uh, 400 Years Ago, They Would Be Witches. Today, they can be your coach. <laughs> and, and in the article, religious historian Molly Worthen uh, actually explores the explosion of the life coach industry, especially among women. Now, for what it's worth, I'm all for life coaches. Get you one. They'll offer some great accountability to you. Uh, but many of these coaches, uh, Worthen points out, are integrating new age spirituality into their coaching plans. They don't have any seminary degree. They don't have an ordination from a governing body. No official training in spiritual methodology or technique. Yet people are paying hundreds of dollars a month for their spirituality. Worthen writes this, she says, if we are tempted to dismiss their taste for crystals and energy healing as new age flimflam, it's partly because they face up to something that many modern Westerners struggle to admit. Neither total submission to a traditional religious institution nor atheistic materialism feels right. We kind of do want the universe to hold our hand without bossing us around too much. As church attendance and other marks of authority 
of traditional religion continue to decline, American hunger for a sense of transcendent meaning is going away. Now, it isn't going away. Now, I find this interesting. For years, the academy has been telling us that, you know, religion and spirituality is going to disappear. It's going to disappear in the modern West. We have become way too enlightened for that. Science will outpace it. Yet here we are. Can't exercise the ghosts, can we? Science is advanced as it's ever been. We've got better technology at the tips of our fingers than any civilization ever. And yet, like the most primitive civilizations ever who prayed to the gods of rain and wind, we still know that there is something out there beyond what we can see. But what can be accounted for by science alone. There is a God. We want to commune with him. We want to experience his power and his peace. This is where our secular culture finds itself. So look, um, the next generation isn't looking for hierarchical authority, y'all. It's not looking for cultural woo or celebrity swag from the church. You know what they're asking? What they're asking is, does anyone know God? Because I'd like to meet him. Like, do these people over here, does it really feel to me? Does it look to me like they have an authentic connection with the divine? I don't care if they got relevant technique. I want to see spiritual technique, spiritual authority, spiritual influence. And if they got that, I'm willing to give it a try. They want spiritual power. So back to our original question, what all the church do when all the secular tools don't work anymore? Well, I think it's simple. We should repent. That's what we ought to do. We should fall on our knees and repent forever depending on the secular to begin with. And do what we do, the spiritual. It's our wheelhouse. Should be. Thank God, by the way, we live in a moment where we aren't under the illusion that we can do this thing called life or church or mission or kingdom on our own. Praise him. The culture wants spiritual power. Great. That's what we do, church. So maybe the better question today would, then would be this. Why don't we have it? Hmm. Now, Jesus is informative on this. Uh, in Mark chapter nine, there's this interesting thing that happens in his life. Uh, I wanna read it to you. I think it offers some real insight, cutting insight into our cultural moment. Let me set the stage for you. In Mark nine, uh, Jesus has just gone up onto the mountain of transfiguration. Heard that story? He and his inner three disciples go up on the mountain. He like communes with some ancient prophets. I don't know, maybe does a little prayer uh, up there. Um, the, the, father, the father pronounces belovedness over the son. This is my beloved son. Listen to him, right? Then Peter puts his foot in his mouth, par for the course, and they come down the mountain. And when they come down the mountain and get to the bottom, the other disciples are at the bottom and they're in a, a dispute, a fight with the teachers of religious raw, uh, law. You remember what the fight's over? Okay, so Jesus walks up to him, and while Jesus walks up, when people see him, the scripture literally says they run to Jesus. And I love that, because this guy just walks around with sort of a spiritual authority and influence about him. So they run to Jesus, and Jesus is like, what up? What's going on here? And, and a father steps forward and bears testimony. He says, I brought my son who has an evil spirit in him for you to heal him. You weren't here, ask your disciples. And your disciples can't cast the evil spirit out. Now, Jesus then proceeds to ask the father to bring forward his son and 
He interrogates him a bit about spiritual power, about his situation. And eventually in his conversation with Jesus, the father reaches this emotional breaking point. And it is totally incoherent. And yet, I bet you you can identify at least at some point in your life with how this father feels. The father, it says, looks to Jesus Verse 24, and instantly cried out, I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Now y'all, this is the distress cry of our culture right now. This right here. I don't know what to believe, but help, universe, Jesus, Buddha, somebody. Like Christianity and institutional religion, they're the worst, all right? But then they're also at the same time like, there has to be more to life than this. Because all the money and sex, all the justice and politics, all the experiences and vacations, all the self-help books and hot yoga ain't doing it. And I tried it all. I went vegan. I did the CBD edibles. I did Netflix. I did a third marriage. Now a fourth, right? And it's just not doing it. Help, like we laugh, but is this not our culture right now? Is this not? And so Jesus walks in and he's like, I can help. And the culture is like, okay, I believe, but help my unbelief. So verse 25 This is how Jesus responds. It says, when Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said. I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. And then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as the people said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet. And he stood up. Verse 28. Uh, Afterward... Like at the after party, I suppose, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? And what a question. Let's ponder that for a second. What a question. They had cast out evil spirits before, done healings, preached the gospel. If you read about the disciples' ministry, this should have been something that they could do. So maybe this is a question that we should be asking today. Why is it that we can't powerfully engage the culture that we are living in, church? Why can't we cast out the evil spirits that seem to be disrupting and haunting our kids and our families and our coworkers and our schools and our culture and our city and our country? Why is it that we can't cast out the demons of polarization, politicization, political idolatry, and disunity? Because I know you don't like them. Why is it that we can't cast out the demons of racism? Because it is still alive and well. Why is it we can't uh, cast out the demons of sexual immorality and abuse? The demons of marital brokenness and invisible fathers and the devaluation of life. The demons of gun violence and homicide. The demons of anxiety, fear, and depression. The demons of opioid addiction, alcohol addiction, porn addiction, screen addiction, all the addictions. Uh, The demons of distraction, boredom, disillusionment, and meaninglessness. The demons of post-Christian apathy. Why is it that we can't cast out the demons of greed, materialism, consumerism, and radical individualism? Why? 
And I'm not talking about the larger culture, at least not yet. We'll get to them eventually. I'm talking about from our churches, from our own families. Okay, we'll get to Capitol Hill and like, you know, drain the swamp or whatever eventually. What about your dinner table? The rhetoric over the last two years has been stunning to me. It's hard for me to know how to process it because people have been all like, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter is bad because they don't stand for the traditional family to which it's like, okay, but like over half the Christians out there are divorced or committing adultery or addicted to porn. Are we committed to the traditional family? Look at Trump and all the white supremacists. Uh, okay, look in the mirror and ask yourself why you hate them so much because it sounds and it looks like hate. Everyone wants to blame California or Texas or wherever you think all the worst people live, okay? What about Northeast Christian Church? What about Louisville? Let's start here. Why can't we cast out the demons here? Why can't we do it here? It's a question we rarely ask. Now here's how Jesus answered the disciples. Mark 9, 28, afterward, Jesus is alone in the house with them. They asked him, why couldn't we cast out the evil spirit? And here's how Jesus replied. Will you read this verse with me? This kind can be cast out only by prayer. Hmm. Jesus said, the reason the evil spirit won't, won't come out is, is because this kind is only cast out by, by prayer. Hmm. And no, no wonder we have no power. Okay, I'm not asking you this to guilt you. We gotta be honest with this so we can move the temperature needle, all right? How much do you pray? For real. Like how, how much? In most of the Christian spaces I grew up in, we talked about prayer, or uh, excuse me, um, we talked about uh, having a personal relationship with God all the time, which was great because I want you to have a personal relationship with God. Uh, but we never really talked about prayer, which if you think about it, makes no sense because prayer is the actual way that you have a personal relationship with God. In fact, in a lot of the Christian spaces I grew up in, it was a badge of humility to admit that you didn't have a good prayer life. Everybody's like, you know, well, I'm not very good at prayer. How, what about you? No, me neither. You know, yeah, it, like we felt a little better about ourselves because we confessed it in front of each other, but then we didn't do anything about it. And by the way, it's probably true. Probably don't have that great of a prayer life. I feel like a hypocrite preaching this today, to be honest with you. But I want you to know that that humble sentiment is not one that my brothers and sisters in the global church share. When I go and spend time with my Bolivian brothers and sisters or with my Dominican brothers and sisters or with my Palestinian brothers and sisters or with my Ugandan brothers and sisters, prayer is core to what they do. They know how to pray. Prayer is at the center of their services. Prayer is at the center of their dinner tables, the center of their families, the center of their lives. They've got a thing or two to learn from the global church. I remember we went to Uganda uh, a few years ago and we wanted to uh, put a well in a community for a pastor because the people of his community didn't have access to clean water. But in order to do it, we had to get it approved by the government official over that area first. 
And the leaders of the trip were very nervous because we had to go meet with them. And they're like, this guy is, is not nice to Christians. He is hostile towards, towards Christians. We don't even know if you guys should come to the meeting. But we're like, we're going to the meeting. And so uh, I remember before we went to the meeting, a lady from his, uh, his government office drove to the house that we were at. She's a Christian. And she said, I just wanna pray for you right now. And when this lady laid hands on us and prayed over us, y'all, English was her second language for what it's worth. But there was a spiritual energy and power, I don't know how else to explain it, other than just power and authority that came from her words. I don't even remember what she said, I remember how I felt after I walked away from her prayers. And you know what, God answered them. We went to the meeting and the government official came in and they're like, he's peachy today, he's in a good mood. And he let us build the well. And today the gospel is prevailing in that area because of the well there. So look, this is my point. Better Instagram is not gonna win the heart of the next generation. Political protests or getting the right candidate, it's not gonna exercise the demons. More books or the perfect small group curriculum or the right sermon series, it's not gonna convert your lost loved ones until, none of that is bad, until None of that works until the people of God are filled with spiritual power through the only way we have been given, prayer. This one only comes out by prayer, Jesus said. Well, look, the evil that we are facing is of a different kind than any generation has faced before, and it will not be cast out without the spiritual power that comes from prayer. That's the vision, y'all. I pray our church can turn up its temperature when it comes to prayer. Now almost done here. To conclude, I just want to make two or three practical observations for you. And this will be your homework for the week, all right? Just real quick, okay? So Matt, can you bring the house lights up real quick? And I just want to point something out to you. Did you ever notice that there's a door over here in our uh, auditorium? There's a door, right? Do you guys see it? And there are letters over the door that form words. What What are the words? It says, yes, it says prayer room. Now, um, did you know that we had a prayer room in here? Because it has been here for 10 years. But did you know? Some of you did not know. Has anyone used, by the way, has anyone, you seen anybody in the last hour and 11 minutes we've been here use the prayer room? I'm not saying this to guilt you because oftentimes we funnel people to the, uh, the fireside room now, right? But I'm just pointing it out like, I wonder, I wonder what would change about our worship services. I wonder how we might go out of this room with power to the mission field of our lives if the people of this church used the prayer room during our worship service. I remember I got to preach at a men's conference last year and it was a great church, church a lot like ours. But when I walked into the room, there was a spiritual electricity in there. I don't know how, again, to explain it. You just feel it. Sometimes you just feel it. And I was like, what is it? Their building wasn't better than our building, by the way. Our building was better than theirs. Their band, our band was just as good. The preaching, I was preaching. So it was the same, right? The same. But there was just, I didn't, I couldn't tell. I was like, there's an energy here. What's going on, right? And then it, it struck me. The worship leader went up to start the, the first session. He strummed a chord and said, let's stand and worship. 
And the men, there were probably about a thousand men in the room, and the men started pouring forward to the steps around the stage and praying. Usually it's like for a minute or two, wasn't long or showy. Some guys would come up by themselves and they'd be weeping. Some would come up and raise a hand and smile and sing to God. Some would come up with a buddy and their buddy would pray over them or they'd pray over each other. They'd go back to their seats. And I was like, ah, there it is. That's what, that's, that's the trick. That's the secret here. The men of this church, and I'm betting the women too, take seriously the call to pray. And I remember thinking to myself, that never happened on the East End. Or could it? Now here's a second observation. I don't know if you noticed that, uh, this, but we actually have a, a prayer page as well. You throw the prayer page up there. We have a prayer page on our website. If you go to our website, click on the connect uh, tab on the top, you can go to prayer. Or you can just go to necchurch.org slash prayer, which is the next page here. It'll take you to this part of our website and uh, you can submit a prayer. And it doesn't just have to be, you know, like I'm, I'm getting a hip replacement or whatever. Send those in, we pray for those. But it can be a prayer of confession, a prayer of adoration, whatever it may be, whatever's on your heart, you can pray it. And you can choose to either keep it private, which means it'll only come to pastors who do pray for you. Or you can choose to make it public, next slide here, and it goes on a prayer wall for our church. And uh, this is what I would ask you to do. I would actually ask you this week, let's turn the temperature of our prayer culture up in this church. I would ask you this week to use the prayer wall. Can you do that? Whatever prayer's on your heart, whether it's a prayer of praise, confession, or healing, bring it to the wall. You can keep it private, you can make it public. And here's what we're gonna do. For those that are made public, I know this is gonna be a mind blower, but we're next week and for many weeks going forward, we're actually just gonna pray for those. We're gonna put the prayers of our church up during the worship service. We're gonna pray for the people. I know. Okay, so that's, that's the deal. Now here's the last thing I'd ask you to do. And I just thought this one up this morning, but I really want you to do this. Last piece of homework. Um, if you have a prayer story of where God has answered a prayer in your life. And in one of those, just like only God, you know, it was only God, Tyler. One of those ways, I would like for you to share that with me this week. Uh, Contact.us at neccchurch.org is our church email. Would you write your story down and share it? Because what I would like to do, and I would never share it publicly for the record without your permission first. But what I would like to do is as your pastor, I would like to get to know the prayer history, the prayer legacy, of this church? How has the Spirit of God worked in the lives of my brothers and sisters here in this church family? I don't know. I just have a feeling God might direct us in our journey towards cultivating a prayer culture in that way. So would you take time to do that this week? Prayer room, prayer page, answered prayer. Since I'm in. All right, this is how I'd close. Look, when the next generation is asking, does anyone really know God? Is there a life coach or a pastor or a shaman or someone out there who is really connected with God? Is there a community of otherworldly beauty that is connected to the transcendent? May they find us a church of prayer. As this generation cries out, I believe, but help my unbelief. In that moment of desperation, may they find a community of people who have real spiritual power that's hard won through a life of prayerfulness. And may it spill out on them and our children and our husbands and wives and on our city and coworkers, on our nation. May we make a difference that starts with prayer first.
I'm gonna put a prayer on the screen. I want you to take one minute, just one minute of silence before you step out into your week. And I want you to pray over this and then tomorrow we'll come up and dismiss us. Home, workplace, city, church, you tell me. Where do you need to repent of self-reliance and where do you need to ask for the power of God? Take a moment, meditate, and then we will dismiss.